Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also cover some hot topics that are law enforcement related and in the news. This week's episode is sponsored by AMC Media. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this week's episode, where we'll talk about yet another death surrounding the Murdoch family of South Carolina. You'll remember in an earlier episode, we discussed Alex, the father, who was recently convicted of killing his wife and son. In this episode, we're going to discuss the 2015 death of Stephen Smith, who was a classmate and friend of Buster Murdoch. Before we get into the case, please hit follow so you can get all of our episodes. Also, rate us and comment so we can get feedback on our podcast. I'm also going to point out that Bill was the chief of forensic investigations for the NYPD, and there wasn't anyone there then or now who knows the subject better. And Chris, as a lieutenant commander in the crime scene unit, was one of the most knowledgeable, experienced, and talented crime scene practitioners ever. I know when I got to a scene, I was always relieved to see either or both of them there, and I knew I was in good hands forensically. I point this out because, number one, they're probably too modest to point it out themselves, and number two, because this case is just chock full of forensic questions. What was done, what wasn't done, and why. So let's get into it. Okay, guys, what do you got? Pat, so on July 8th, 2015, at 3.30 in the morning, Stephen Smith, a 19-year-old male, was found laying DOA in the middle of the road on a rural backcountry road called Sandy Run Road. Stephen was fully dressed with loose clothes and loose shoes on, and his car was about three miles away. Investigators found the car out of gas and his personal items, like his wallet, still inside the car. Inside Stephen's clothes, he had his cell phone and other personal items. Stephen sustained injuries to his head, but nothing else. At the scene, there was no evidence of a car accident. There was no broken glass. There was no car parts. There was no debris. This is all the investigators had to work with. So, Chris, Stevens found in the middle of a rural road in the middle of the night. Four o'clock in the morning. His cell phone is on him intact. His sneakers are loosely tied, still on his feet. His clothing's not ripped. He's got a blunt trauma force injury to his forehead. The initial report from Highway says that this is a homicide. They originally believed he was shot in the head because there was so much blood. And somehow this case gets labeled as a hit and run. Still open, never investigated fully as possibly that homicide that it was originally labeled as. How do we get there? Like you look at the other evidence, his wallet's in the car, his car's three miles away from where his body is. It just doesn't add up. Am I missing something here? Yeah. Anyone with the kind of experience we've had has to question just about everything about how this was described. Number one, if you look at the crime scene photos, that doesn't look like the body of someone who was hit and knocked to the roadway. It actually looks like someone who went to the ground almost comfortably. His injuries were described. He had a crushed skull. He had a gaping hole in his forehead, dislocated shoulder. I believe at some point they posited that he might have been hit by a, a mirror on the side of a truck, yet they found no traces of glass on the roadway or in his clothing. His clothing doesn't indicate any kind of dragging on the road or uh, paint from a vehicle. There's a lot of questions here. No skid marks from a vehicle. 
I mean, this ain't a tractor trailer hit him, but it just seems like from the evidence that we're seeing, that body was most likely dropped there rather than hit on that scene. Well, right, if you think about it, that injury to his forehead, they describe as a crushed skull and a gaping hole in his forehead. If that injury made him incapable, like if that made him unconscious, it's not like he could have walked the three miles from his car after being injured and then just fell in the roadway. But on the other hand, if he was hit by a vehicle, you would expect all sorts of evidence of that. Like you said, skid marks. He's wearing sneakers that are loosely tied. He probably would have been knocked out of his sneakers if he was hit by a vehicle. And his clothes, even cloth, uh, reveals contact and compression marks when you're hit by a vehicle. So where do we go from here? Too many questions. And that's what makes this very concerning to a lot of people, especially Sandy, Stephen's mother. Sandy had told a journalist that when she first got the call from the Hampton County Sheriff's Department, she was told that he was shot in the head. After about a day or two, she was contacted by uh, Alec and Raymond, Alec's brother, and they wanted to represent her. Once the Murdochs got involved, things started to change. The local authorities now said it wasn't a gunshot wound. It was now a hit and run, which the autopsy results and the injuries aren't consistent with the hit and run. And even in the, uh, the medical examiner's office, there's some inconsistencies amongst the pathologist and the coroner. The original pathologist had called it a hit and run. But when the assistant coroner got involved, she disagreed with the findings. She believed there was a entry wound to the head, a gunshot wound to the head, and he had defensive marks on his hands. Well, with this Murdoch family and that part of South Carolina, I mean, there's so many twists and turns with all of the deaths connected with this family. They had money. They had power. They had political influence. And it just gives you the sense that anything is possible here. But the one good thing that the family of Stephen Smith has done is they've hired two independent pathologists to exhume the body. And I believe they're actually going to take it out of state to do that follow-up autopsy. That should give us some real answers here. Yeah, they're just waiting for the local coroner to sign off, and then they're going to take the body down to Tampa for an independent autopsy. But it also seems that whenever there's an incident and the Murdoch family's involved, it just seems once their name is mentioned, they have such a grip in this small community of 20,000 people that there tends to be a moral or an ethical paralysis. In this incident, you know, it seems like they originally said this may have been a homicide. Now the Murdaws are involved and there's people saying that maybe the Murdaws had gone to the scene the night of the incident. They're saying that one of the Murdaw uncles had called the family. You know, we've painted a picture of, of the scene. Let's paint a picture of Stephen Smith. What do we know about him? Who is Stephen Smith? I mean, he's a nursing school student, right? Right. And how he knows the Murdoch family is Stephen Smith and Buster went to the same high school. They're 19-year-olds. I believe they played baseball together. So uh, Buster is the surviving son of Alex Murdoch, right? Yes, he's the surviving son. Stephen had tutored Buster in high school. The one thing with Stephen is he was a proud gay man in a community, a very small community in South Carolina. And it seemed like everybody that knew him said that he was a happy uh, young man. He was always full of life. He aspired to be a nurse. He was going to nursing school. Well, there's some contrasting uh, information here about Stephen Smith. Yes, he was a nursing student. He was openly gay. Some people uh, thought maybe he had a relationship with Buster Murdoch. But one of these investigative journalists has commented that while he seemed to be a, a law-abiding individual, that he had a lot of acquaintances and friends 
that might have been involved in drug sales and money laundering. So that's another angle that could be an explanation of what went on here. And that's the point I'm trying to make, that originally when this incident happened, I believe law enforcement would have explored all of those areas. But it seems once the Murdoch name is mentioned, it seems like there's a paralysis. It seems like whatever thinking was going on as far as going forward with an investigation, how does the family, the Murdoch family, reach out to the Smith family, offering our help, whatever you need, and the case gets pretty much shut down? It goes from a homicide to a hit and run. And even if it's still a hit and run, what was done on that investigation? There should have still been an investigation done. People should have been spoken to. Any potential suspects. The thinking is there was a baseball bat that was used to smash his head in. If that's the case, you're looking at potential evidence that could link somebody to that baseball bat or that weapon that was used to hit him. Who was spoken to? Was anyone spoken to? We don't know that. I'm sure people were spoken to. And then you look at the phone and his iPad tablet. I believe he had Verizon. And you look at the data... You'll be able to tell, did he walk three miles to where his body was found? Or was he at a different location? Did they kill him somewhere else and he was brought there? His cell phone data may have that information. That's one of the first things that they should have looked at. Also in the cell phone, you know, you're looking at the social media apps. You're looking at any text messages. They eventually got into his phone. But that's going to have so much information that's going to help lead to people that are suspects and actually exclude people. So if a murder name is mentioned in this case, you may be able to exclude the murder name, or you may be able to continue to include them as potential suspects. But those are all things that need to be done. So like you're saying, the basic investigative techniques, right? So you got Buster being uh, named multiple times as a potential uh, perpetrator in the crimes, a potential suspect. You have Stephen's older brother, Chris, telling the authorities that he's approached by an unknown male while he's at work, who says he was in the car with Buster that night, and he tells him that Buster hit him with the baseball bat. They were out smashing mailboxes, and they come across Stephen, and Buster hits him with the baseball bat. Now, the injuries are consistent with a blow to the head from a baseball bat. The facial damages were so bad at the autopsy, they had to use clay to rebuild Stephen's face for the wake of the funeral. So Paul tells a schoolmate that his brother does it. That schoolmate tells the school authorities, and then a few weeks later, Paul's transferred out of that school to a new school. Two separate witness, well, statements from two separate people. Buster's also a notorious drinker. So think about him out there with a baseball bat doing stupid shit in the middle of the night. And he comes across his former classmate in the road. Well, you know, listen, it's a recipe for There's no doubt they had something going on, and one of the witnesses said that he didn't want Stephen to tell anybody that they had enough love affair, and that's how they, that's why he does it. So you have many angles pointing at Buster. Nobody speaks to Buster. Nobody locks him into a statement, even if it's just a soft touch. And we spoke about this in the past about a soft touch. You know, finding out uh, what Buster has to say about it, lock him into the story, so we could go back later on and hit him with more information if we need to, and go from there. Buster is a prime suspect, and no work was done to connect Buster to Stephen. Two things here. The first is, it seems that every time the Murdoch family name comes up, all normal investigative procedures and outcomes seem to come to a dead stop. No pun intended. The other thing is, it seems like there's always a reach out from the Murdoch family to the family of the victims with an offer of assistance, an offer to help. 
But what it really looks like, if, if you have a suspicious mind, is it looks like an attempt to control the information and the outcome. Right. And then there's possibly other suspects that could be included as far as potentially committing this crime. This could have nothing at all to do with the Murdoch family. This could be a crime of opportunity. It could be an anti-gay hate crime. It could be a crime to cover up his knowledge of some other person's criminal activity. Who knows what this could be? Right. And if Buster is not the perpetrator of this crime, you could rule him out. You'll be doing him a, a favor by ruling him out. I mean, there's so many ways that you establish an alibi. If he's not a suspect, let's just say, I'm Buster. I want to show that I wasn't a suspect. I was with these people at this time during the murders. Or my cell phone data will show that I was here. I mean, it's just the way that this investigation was handled just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it stinks. The whole, the facts around it just stinks. It stinks like a rotten bologna sandwich. There's steps that can be followed here. I mean, first of all, the scene. We want to know what the scene tells us. And I don't think we know that yet. For instance, if he was hitting the head with a baseball bat, a forensic specialist, someone doing an autopsy, is probably going to be able to tell us, yes, it's likely that that might have happened. But they also might tell us, hey, that blunt force trauma to his head is not consistent with the shape of a baseball bat. But what we need to know first is, what does the scene tell us? Then you go back and you say, all right, where was Stephen Smith before he ended up on that road? Who's the last person who saw him? Where's the last place he was? And you go from there. Then you add the electronics to that, his phone, his iPad data, emails, social media, all of that. And you start to put the puzzle pieces together. But I don't think anyone's confident that that was done, maybe just not reported, but that it was done in a competent manner once the Murdochs were involved. Right. There's a few things here. There's reports of Stephen being on the phone with his friend Mark just prior to 3 a.m. And Mark says, I hear him walking. I ask him, are you walking? And the phone call cuts out. That's the last communication that Stephen has with anybody. Okay, we know he was walking on that street. After that, we don't know. And he's walking to get gas, you're saying? He runs out of gas, and he's walking on the street. See, now, I hear conflicting reports in that. I'm hearing that although the gas cap was open, his wallet was in the car. So if you're going to get gas, why would you leave your wallet in the car? Don't you need money to get gas? And was he walking in the direction of a gas station? Valid points. All valid points. But what we do know is, Mark says, I hear him walking. You have this unknown male that approaches the brother at work and says, I was in the car. We were out smashing mailboxes in the dark road, middle of the night, and we come across Buster. So that's what we do know. Now, this gets into what Pat's saying, the evidence at the scene. There's no glass. There's no debris. On Stephen's clothing at autopsy, they don't recover any glass, any paint chips from the car. In a situation of a hit and run, you will have transference of evidence from the car to the clothing. You'll have impression marks, the bumper, the grill. There will be something that is indicative of a vehicle striking the body. Again, no injuries to his torso. The odds of him just sustaining a head injury has a very low probability. So you put all these factors together. Now, one thing I question, the coroner says she has a gunshot wound to his head. There's no exit wound. There's only an entry wound. Where's the fired bullet? It should be in his head. If you don't have a fired bullet, how is that a gunshot wound? You don't have shell casings. Possibly there is no shell casings. It could be picked up. It could have been a revolver. So there is no shell casings. But there should be a fired bullet still in Stephen's head if he was shot. I don't understand how that determination could be made without finding a bullet. 
It shouldn't even be a question at this point. It shouldn't be a question. You you might, you know, suppose that in the beginning, but once you start to do your your forensic investigation, like you said, they could have ruled that out or in right off the bat. Immediately. They should have taken x-rays. A radiology report should be done at the autopsy as far as determining what fractures, what broken bones, and it would even pick up on a bullet that was in his skull. And the second thing, as far as paint, I was reading somewhere that there was actually tiny blue paint chips found at the funeral home in his clothing. Now, again, I read it. I don't know how factual that is, but the one thing I didn't understand with that is how the pathologist wouldn't catch that during the autopsy. Well, he wouldn't be in the same clothing at the funeral home as he would the day of the incident. It would be totally different clothing. That's what you would think. You would think that the clothing that he was killed in would go to the pathologist, would be looked at during the autopsy. And stay there. Right. And that's why I didn't understand at the funeral home, you know, they said they found tiny blue paint chips in his clothing. So again, normally that wouldn't be the protocol. You would not have the clothing that he was killed in brought to the funeral home. So that's questionable, but it is out there. I did read that. One of the things that bothers me about it, and it's just because it's so easy to comment on, is if you look at the crime scene photos, you know, it's not like television where someone has a traumatic death and they look nice and neatly splayed out on the ground. In a car accident or a death like that, a body usually does not fall neatly. And the impression I get from looking at those crime scene photos is that he kind of fell to the ground. He was not knocked to the ground. Both of his legs are in the same position. They're not crossed over one another. His body is twisted to one side as if like you do when you're laying down. It just doesn't look like someone who was uh, traumatically knocked to the ground. Right. And also, did anybody take a look at Buster's car? Buster sold his car a short time after Stephen was found dead. Investigators failed to track that car down, look for damage. If paint chip was found on the clothing, does the paint match Buster's car? Who was Buster with that night? All of these things really need to have been looked at. And again, when the investigation is done properly, it could rule Buster out and help him just as much as it would rule him in. Here's one of the first questions I would have also, and uh, it may take a while to get this information, but it's certainly worth pursuing. That's a rural area. It's a rural road. There's probably only one cell phone tower, cell site, that covers that area. So I would want to get a subpoena or whatever the legal process is in South Carolina to get the cell site information. And I want to know what other cell phones were in that immediate area pinging off of that cell site around the time when they think Stephen Smith ended up dead? Were there three other cell phones? Were there 30? Were there 300? It's a rural area. I wouldn't expect that there are too many. But you go through them and you say, hey, wait, look at this. There's three cell phones that are pinging off this tower in the immediate vicinity. Let's take a look at these people and see who they are and why they might have been there. Was there a search for cameras along that route? He was found three miles away from where his car was. I'm sure there has to be one camera footage of that area on that roadway. Uh, not necessarily. If it was a rural road, there might not even be a house. True, but did they even look for cameras? Yeah, and these are all valid who questions. Knows? Yeah, who and, knows? And that's what makes this whole case stink. And I think everybody sees this countrywide. I think the authority sees it. The Hampton County Sheriff's Office, they're the original investigators. When it's deemed a hit and run, it gets bounced up to the State Highway Patrol. The State Highway Patrol says, no, we don't believe this is a hit and run. We don't know what it is. It's an unknown at this time, but it's not a hit and run. So they push it back to Hampton County Sheriff's Department, and it stays in lingo. 
There is a report of Sandy's mother writing Nikki Haley at the time asking for the state to get involved, and she assigns it to a state investigative unit, which, according to records, they exhaust all leads. But it does not appear that the work that should have been done on this investigation was actually done. What compounds the issue here is if nothing at all was done, it would have been easier just to investigate it fresh. But it looks like there were stops and starts in this investigation, and professionals have made conclusions and documented them so far. So it complicates things a little because now that you're reinvestigating it and taking a fresh look, it puts people in a position to have to maybe contradict what's already been put in paper. It makes it more difficult. Absolutely. But, you know, I've always said, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, more than likely it is a duck. You just have to figure out how is it a duck. There's so many arrows pointing at Busty here. You really have to do a deep dive into Busta. That weekend, Stephen told his sister that he was going away with a, another male from a prominent family in the community. He didn't say the name. He was afraid to say the name. So he didn't tell anybody who he was going with. But he was going away with a prominent male in the community. There's no more prominent family than the Murdoch family in that community. I think the only thing everyone could agree on in this case is it wasn't a hit and run and that this young man was murdered. And we're never going to find out the truth unless there's an objective investigation done. And you've got to include whatever suspects you have and you got to try to exclude them one by one. But to do that, you got to gather as many facts as you can. You got to try to gather as much evidence as you can. And that's going to lead you to the primary suspect. That's going to lead you to make an arrest. But I do believe that there's going to be an arrest made on this case. I believe that once they get competent people looking at this case, once they get competent people delving in, questioning people, looking at the evidence, I feel that there's going to be enough evidence to arrest somebody with this young man's murder. Sled has the investigation now. They've proven to themselves to be 100% with the Murdoch wife and son's murder. So you got to have confidence in them. They're removed from the Murdoch family. The name of the Murdoch family is mud now. So nobody's going to want to protect them. Nobody's going to want to cover them up anymore. So you got to say at this point, you have to rely on digital evidence. You have to rely on um, Apple and uh, their Verizon, whatever digital evidence, whatever footprints are still there. You're talking eight years ago. Could they retrieve them at this point? That's going to be the basis for going forward with prosecution. Yeah, the other thing is uh, circumstances have changed over time with whoever the alleged suspects might be. You might have uh, one or more than one suspect, and they might be in a position now where they maybe want to tell that story about how Stephen Smith ended up dead. It might benefit them to tell the story at this point. Right. If we were doing this, what would be the first thing we would do? Work up Buster's phone, work up Steven's phone, figure out who Buster was with that night, and like you said, get them to flip on him and tell the story. I would keep all my options open. I would have multiple suspects in mind, and I would do all of their phones. I wouldn't just narrow my investigation down to one person. I'd keep it open to as many people and then exclude people one by one. And if it led to Buster, it led to Buster. But again, you have to keep an open mind in this investigation and take a fresh look at everything. And I agree with not having tunnel vision, but eight years later, I don't know if you can have too many avenues to explore other than trying to rule Busta in or out. How about re-interview the guy that provided the mother with the information on the kid was hit with a baseball bat? Re-interview him, right? He's unknown. He approaches the brother at work. They right. don't know who he is. So just try to locate him. 
Try to locate anybody that has information on this. Just revisit it. Talk to people and leverage information against one another. People that knew, I know they're saying that Stephen was with a prominent man at the time. He had a relationship with a prominent man who was an older man. Interview him. Who else had contact with Stephen? Who was Stephen speaking to? His social media, the events that led up to his death, you have to go by piece by piece and try to pick off any piece of evidence that you can, speaking to as many people as you can. And you'll be surprised. People now, you're right, people are more willing to come forward now. That family's grip on that community isn't as strong as it was at the time, eight years ago at the time of this murder. So I think people are more willing to speak about it. So in my opinion, the facts are still there. If we have an objective investigation by competent people who are not interfered with, this will be solved. The facts are there. The information's there. When you put all the pieces together, there's never a guarantee that you could solve a case like this. But this one is certainly solvable, hopefully. And uh, one day we'll know what happened to Stephen Smith. But for now, there's still a lot of questions. I agree. Hopefully someday this kid gets the justice that he deserves. And that's that. Thank you for joining us for this hot topic on Real Crime NYC. Hit subscribe and follow us for free access to our most up-to-date episodes. You can find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.